Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is October the 17th, a Monday morning, 2022. Uh, time to take stock, perhaps, in the upcoming election. A lot of people are going to be taking stock on whether or not we, that is the American people, picked the right president with Joe Biden. Uh, last week, I had the progressive journalist, Michael Tomaski, on the show. He's also the editor of The New Republic. I think he thinks we did indeed uh, pick the right president, Joe Biden, but that's from the point of view of his own uh, progressive politics, uh, reflected in his new, very interesting new book, The Middle Out. Not everyone, I think, will agree. Some people think that Biden's student debt forgiveness proposal wasn't the right thing to do. Philip Levine, for example, an expert on student debt, appeared on the show a month or two ago arguing that. Um, others believe that Biden's uh, sympathy, perhaps on the left um, of the Democratic Party, isn't that wise. William Galston, very distinguished political thinker and writer, was on the show suggesting that. Uh, and others have been quite critical of his foreign policy, suggesting, like Stephen Wertheim, that he's mishandled Ukraine. Not everyone, of course, agrees with that. So did we pick the right president um, in 2020? Uh, let's ask a man who has just written a book on picking presidents. Um, uh, Gotham uh, Mukunda uh, is um, a PhD in political science, a high-level consultant, uh, and the author of this new book, Picking Presidents, How to Make the Most Consequential Decision in the World. Uh, and Gotham is joining us from downtown Boston. So, Gotham, welcome. Congratulations on the new book. It's just out this week. Um, did America pick the right president in your mind? Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. So I think the answer is yes. The right president doesn't mean the perfect president or necessarily mean the greatest president ever. You can differ with certain choices President Biden has made or particular policies has adopted and still say that given the alternatives that we had and you can't make decisions without thinking about alternatives, we definitely did. Um, and I think it is easy that to understate the scale of what has happened in the last year and a half with the president, with uh, with President Biden and sort of gloss over it because it's some of it has happened sort of either in the background or so, you know, or quickly. But just, you know, if you just look at the last few months, the United States has passed one of the most important acts of industrial policy in its history in the CHIPS Act, has passed in its climate change legislation, not just the largest climate change legislation in American history, but the largest climate change legislation in anyone's history. It is actually larger than the sum total amount spent to deal with climate change by every country in the European Union combined over their entire history. Um, just to pick two examples, and did all that with a zero vote margin in the Senate. Um, I think historians will look back at that and be kind of shocked by the, by, by the sheer scale of what was achieved. Gotham, some people might be watching this and thinking, well, historians might do that because historians are all on the left. And you sound to me like a, a member of the, the Biden staff. There are at least 40, maybe 50 percent of Americans who would 
strongly disagree, we all, of course, have the right to agree or disagree. What's interesting to me is in your book, Picking Presidents, how do you get beyond ideology? It's one thing to share Biden's commitment to economic justice or the environment, but not everyone cares about that sort of stuff. Uh, so it's very like, true. And so I'll just note, I, I, you know, so I'm extremely not a member of the Biden staff. Um, and like, I wasn't, even if I disagreed with those policies, and I certainly don't agree with all of their details, I would just note that the size of them is quite shocking and much more than almost any political scientist would have anticipated going into this administration. So I just sort of note that, right? Like whether or not you thought Obamacare was important, was a good idea when it was passed, it was a very big thing when it was passed. And that's sort of what I was trying to assess there. Um, in trying to get past those ideological conflicts in the book, what I would say is that what I truly really try to rely on is time. Um, so liberals and conservatives have very different views of contemporary events in American politics. But over time, those views tend to converge on one area or another. So when Abraham Lincoln was president of the United States in the 1860s, he was, you know, loved on one side of the American political spectrum and hated on the other. And few people have ever been more controversial in American history. And no, probably no one has ever taken more abuse from the press. Um, 150 years later, there might be, there are certainly a handful of Americans who do not share the common veneration for Abraham Lincoln, but they are not, to put it mildly, part of the center of the American political discourse. So one of the things that I do in my, in my book is I do not want to be in the business of rating presidents of the United States, precisely for the sort of ideological issues that you're describing, Andrew. Um, so I rely on historians who have a tradition in the United States every four years of serving, of serving ranking presidents and you know using a survey-based format to do that. One of the really interesting things I looked at is conservative historians often share the critique that you just made, that historians are a very liberal bunch, which they are. I have many historian friends, and overwhelmingly, they're on the left. Um, and so conservative historians got together and said, look, we should do our own ranking and see how different our rankings are from those by, by, you know, by the mainstream of historians who are liberal. And the surprising, but maybe not that surprising outcome, was their rankings were almost identical the conservative rankings came out with very few differences from the liberal rankings. The only real, the only really large one was that Ronald Reagan was much higher up in the conservative ranking than he was in the liberal rankings. But conservative historians put Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. Uh, right yeah, I was, we, we did a show with uh, Rick Perlstein, of course, the author of Nixon land and Reagan land. He's not a great fan of Reagan, but no. most people, even progressives seem now to have a grudging admiration of Reagan. Well, let, as you say, you're not evaluating every president, but you rely on historians. We did a show with Julian Zelizer. I'm sure you're familiar with him, a historian at Princeton mm -hmm. University. He's in charge now of an Oxford University Press uh, series of evaluating each presidency. So he did one on Trump, and we actually had him and Margaret O'Mara, a tech historian on the show, talking about the Trump presidency. I don't want to turn this into another attack on, on Trump, because it gets very boring. But um, how, how would you evaluate Trump in the context of the fact that clearly he was a deeply divisive president? And actually, um, uh, the, the New York Times uh, columnist, um, uh, 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 Thomas Edsel, just had a piece on Ron DeSantis, and he quotes you, talking about the divisiveness of the Trump presidency. 
I didn't know he'd done that. <laughs> yeah, that's well, an interesting piece. It, it was a yeah. sympathetic quote, and, and you're amongst good company there. Um, and Edsel's actually going to be on the show next year. He has a new book coming out too. But the thing about Trump is that America is a deeply divided country. So all he does is reflect. He mirrors America. So in terms of picking a president in a deeply divided country, is it better to pick a Trump or a Biden? So in my book, I try to answer that question of exactly how do you how, how do you understand who would make a successful president? So what I would say is you would want to step back for, for a second, because Trump and Biden are in a very real extent ideal types in yeah. a way that we've really never seen, never seen before in American history. So I in my both of my books, I say is that leaders can be divided into two types, what we call filtered and unfiltered. And just to jump in here, uh, uh, Gotham, uh, your your first book was called Indispensable When Leaders Really Matter. So that, that came out a few years ago. So you've written a couple of books on this theme. That's right. Yeah. So and Indispensable, what I was trying to understand was who are the leaders who make a very large difference on their organizations, the ones who just completely transform the way that organization behaves or performs, either for better or for worse, right? Some, some leaders who create or save organizations and some who destroy them. And what I found was that the large mass of leaders, the people who take most commonly take charge of large, powerful organizations are what I call filtered. So they're people who have worked their way up the ranks of the organization. They are very thoroughly evaluated. The organization knows exactly who they are and who they're trying to be. And as a consequence, they're almost always highly competent, but they're almost always replaceable. So if it wasn't this person, the organization would just have found someone else who would have done taken roughly the same actions and had roughly the same outcomes. That's a filtered leader. An unfiltered leader is someone who comes in from the outside, who, you know, who inherits the job or all of the other candidates have, you know, are discredited for some reason or it doesn't it really doesn't matter. But as a candidate, an unfiltered leader is someone who the system has not had a chance to evaluate properly. And because they haven't been evaluated properly, they can be very, very different from all the other people who would might have had that job. Because they are different, they would make choices that no one else would make. And those choices tend to be very high variance. They tend to be either really, really successful or a failure or a disastrous failure. They're, they're almost never in the, in the middle. What I say is that unfiltered leaders can be many things, but they are very rarely boring. And, and of course, uh, Trump is the... Is, is the ideal type of an unfiltered leader, whereas I, uh, I, I'm assuming you're arguing that Biden is the reverse. That's right. Trump is as unfiltered as it is possible for a political candidate to be. Um, he had a total of zero days of time in government before he became president of the United States. And his business career was you know, a product of having, you know, whatever you say about his successes or failures, he could not have had the business career that he did without inheriting the, his company from his father. But, but coming back to this mm -hmm. issue of picking presidents, I think some people... Mm -hmm voted for Trump because they assumed that he was unfiltered as a candidate in terms of marketing himself. But when he actually came to office, he'd behave himself and behave like a real president, which, of course, he didn't. So let's get rather than talking about how act, how presidents act. What about this issue of picking presidents? Is that the core of the book? And, and how should we evaluate presidents? We're going to after this election, we're going to get back into presidential primary season. We're going to be talking about DeSantis and Trump and, and, and Biden and so on and so forth. So this whole issue of 
picking presidents gets kicked back into the court of the voter. So it is at the core of the book is exactly that. Picking presidents is trying to give anybody, anybody who reads it, a toolkit that allows them to evaluate presidential candidates using only publicly inf available information so that whether or not you would vote for this person, you would, you would leave it having relatively high confidence that that person can do the job. And when essentially the core of my argument is really simple. The presidency is, we all say, the president of the United States is the most powerful person in the world, but we don't always think what that means, right? That, that is not hyperbole. The president of the United States is one of two people on earth who can end human civilization. The president of the United States- Well, there's actually decisions. three now, I mean. Uh, you know, the Chinese nuclear arsenal is significant, but it's actually not that, it's not yet that large. So it, and, it, and interestingly it, enough, we did a, a, an interview last week with a couple of German journalists um, who have a new book out on or Xi Jinping, who argue that he now is the most powerful person in the world. So anyway, we have two yeah. or three. It's certainly amongst the most powerful. Um, amongst them. And so the president of the United States, you know, will routinely make decisions that shape the course of just not just national, but, you know, human history. And so and even within the United States, we often forget just how vast the president's president's powers are if the president chooses to exert them at, at their maximum. Right. In cases of states of emergency and things like that. So when we pick that a person for that role, I would say our baseline should be, we should be exceptionally confident that they can do the basics of the job, the blocking and tackling of the job. Because when they fail at that, the consequences are, sort of, are catastrophic at a level that can, can last literally for centuries. My, my ultimate example of that is Andrew Johnson, who replaced Abraham Lincoln after the Civil War, and who literally, because Andrew Johnson was president of the United States, set back the course of civil rights in the United States by a century. Um, had, we, we, the way we often are taught American history is that civil rights is this kind of like steady improvement over time and that finally culminates in the civil rights acts of the 1960s. Um, nothing could be further from the truth. The African-Americans in, in 1867, you know, the America had more civil rights than they did in 1957 America. Uh, and that is because of Andrew Johnson. So one president of the United States can have that kind of impact. Um, but now again, to be, mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm the last person to defend Andrew Johnson, but I mean, he did reflect a certain view of a large amount of people in America at the time. It wasn't as if everything he was doing was unpopular. So, I mean, it was sufficiently unpopular that he was right. He was impeached by, by the house and, and only saved from conviction by the Senate, by one vote from the Senate and essentially expelled from his own party. Um, what I would say is the people whose positions he, he, he only became president because of Lincoln's assassination. Right. So the people of the United States, under there is no set of circumstances in which it is conceivable that they would have chosen Johnson or someone of his views for the presidency. So how do um, we um, so, so I take your point. We did a show. I mean, FDR is often represented as the greatest of certainly 20th century American presidents. L many, many books on, on, on FDR. We, we did an interesting show with Jonathan Darman, a journalist who has a new book out. Becoming FDR, the personal crisis that made a president. It's a, it's a book about how he essentially learned to grow up and become a statesman through his own personal cr cr health crisis. Mm -hmm. How do voters? How does the electorate determine uh, somebody like FDR or so Trump or Nixon or or Obama? It's so hard because especially these days because of the aggressive marketing of these people. So it is hard, but I'd say it is, it is not impossible. Um, the first thing you really need to do is sort of make a divide between 
uh, what I call, again, filtered and unfiltered presidents, where filtered presidents are those who have been evaluated. And for those presidents, you should, in general, have a very high level of confidence that they can execute the basics of the job. They may not be great. Be, they may, they're rarely Abraham Lincoln, if ever, but they are usually not disasters. And so you would think about, say, George H.W. Bush is my classic example of the filtered president. Um, well, he was, I mean, you could argue he was pretty disastrous. I mean, and I assume you was, I assume you believe that Trump was a disaster. Uh, so George H.W. Bush, so not the son, but the father. Yeah, well, um, so, he wasn't a great success. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I said they're, they're rarely great successes either, but they're usually they usually not. What about the son? I mean, he seems pretty disastrous, too. So the son was not would the son would not have been a filtered president. Right. So he had only been governor of Texas for five years when he ran for president. He had only become governor of Texas, of course, because of his very famous, his very famous. Name. Right. So here's so, I mean, yeah. it's more complicated because of the aristocratic nature of American politics is if you're somehow related to. A, a family, a skion, then you people take you a little bit more seriously. Like Bush. That's right. So, so, so being being a product of one of those families is is what I call uh, is, is essentially an I for for is for an unfiltered candidate is a huge warning sign. Um, it is what I call an unearned advantage. It makes someone elevates someone to the upper levels of the American political system without them having demonstrated the underlying capabilities that basically say, well, they deserve to be there. And so the, the, you're exactly right that that aristocratic nature of the American political system it can, it can be very problematic and that it elevates people who might not have the competencies to do the job. Um, so George W. Bush certainly would not have been president of the United States if not for who his father was. Um, and you can think of, you know, unearned advantages more broadly as a real, as a genuinely problematic thing, not just in the presidency, but in any leadership position. Yeah, Gotham, you're, you're presenting politics and certainly the decision of who to vote for in a presidential election as a highly rational choice. It could be something that could be turned into some sort of algorithm almost. You're a PhD from a, just a very notable East Coast university. You teach at Harvard. Are, are you introducing a, a sort of a, a technocratic criteria for evaluating presidents that does away with the blood and guts, the spirit, the passion, the emotion here? So I would say very much not, and that all of those things are absolutely critical. Um, elections are matters of chaos and confusion and blood and guts and passion and skill and luck and all of those things that get together. Um, I often tell people that, you know, that... We, we sort of attach a lot of civic virtue to being involved in politics, but most people who are involved in politics are involved in politics because politics because they think it's a lot of fun. Um, they enjoy that part. They enjoy that part of the experience. Um, but at the same time that we do that, right? It's very it's important to remember it is not all a game. It really, really matters who ends up in charge, who, who who ends up as president of the United States, and we as citizens of a democracy, right? We can do the we can do the bread and circuses thing we can enjoy entertainment i take a lot of enjoyment out of getting out of following politics i enjoy it in the same way that i enjoy following the red sox uh maybe not as much this year um mm. but at the same time i'm not you know like we can't ever forget just how much depends on the outcome of this contest yeah, you remember Steve Jobs famously said about the iPhone that he was going to decide what it looked like because he couldn't trust the consumers. Is, is the same true of politics? Does it sometimes require a genius 
even if a jerk like Jobs, to actually determine what we want? Do we even know what we want? I mean, Jobs would suggest that we had no idea of the kind of product we wanted because we'd never seen it before. Trump might say something like that. Well, Henry Ford famously said that if I gave the people what they wanted, I would have given them a faster horse. Um, but no, that that is not the argument that I'm making. What I'm saying is, in fact, it's impossible to predict, you know, going forward, what are the issues that will determine the outcome of a presidency? When George right. W. Bush was elected, nobody would have said, you know, uh, the, the biggest terrorist attack in human history, war invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, and the largest financial crisis since the Great Depression. But that was what he had to deal with. For Donald Trump, you know, the number of people on earth who would have said, well, the issue that will define his presidency is the worst public health crisis since 1918 is, you know, there, I'm sure there were a handful, but it might literally have been a handful, right? Um, what I am saying is what, it, given the given just how uncertain the future is, when we elect someone, you want to elect someone who has the capacity to deal with a wide variety of potential events. Is this in some ways, Gautham, like getting married and determining whether or not who, who we choose as our spouse? Um, you, you, you very publicly um, got married. Your, 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 your marriage announcement was in the New York Times. Uh, you have a char very charming looking wife. Um, <laughs> uh, some photos from the wedding in the New York Times. I wouldn't normally do this, but it's very public. And, and she made it clear that she wasn't sure about you. She thought you were pretty cool. But to be absolutely sure, she went on 19 more dates to make sure that Gautam Mukunda was the real thing, which you are, and I hope you're still happily married. Is that how we should be thinking about marriage, Gautam? Or perhaps we, uh, perhaps we should reverse that too and, 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 and think about uh, electing presidents and getting married in the same kind of context. Well, very happily, I have to say, I didn't Good. expect you to put well, that up, but, uh, but um, yeah, so um, so what I would say is I often say when I'm talking about this, that that you think we should think about leader selection the same way we think about dating or getting married. And what I mean by that is, you know, teenagers want to date a supermodel. And when you grow up a little bit, what you realize is that you don't want there isn't some ranking of the best people in the world where, from top to bottom and you want the top. R dating is not a ranking problem. It is a matching problem. You want the best person for you, not necessarily some absolute contention. of. So did your wife did the right thing in meeting you and then going on 90 more dates to make sure you were the real thing? But you can't do that with presidents. You can't you can't have. Uh, well, we'll give this guy a month to see if he's any good. Well, no, well, although the British system makes you a little bit gives you a little bit more flexibility to do that, as I guess Liz Truss is finding out right now. Yeah. Um, um, so no, I mean, well, I, I certainly would not uh, have any disagreements with my wife's, uh, my wife's decision process, given the outcome. Uh, and I hope I, you did I, the same thing. It, it doesn't say anything in the times, but I uh, assume you gave it some very serious thought too. Well, I, I gave it some very serious thought, but I, I didn't, I didn't need to, um, is what I would say. Uh, but what I would say in the, in this case, right, is we, we don't have a chance of swapping out presidents. But we do have the chance to evaluate someone before they become president. We can have them be a senator or a governor or a member of the cabinet or a general in the army. And all of those are positions where we're evaluating someone where they have power and we can observe what they do with it. Um, mm. I think having power, the social science will tell you this, is maybe the most one of the most transformative things that can happen to a human being. 
having but isn't power. It really, I, I take your point. I think mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a very interesting one. You wrote a piece on leadership. I mean, you're really, a, the book is about leadership in many yes, ways. Right. You talk about learning from Stan McChrystal. We've done a number of shows on business leadership, uh, both in a good and a bad way. We did one with Bill George, a former Medtronic CEO, teaches now at Harvard, is very critical of Elon Musk. But it's one thing to lead, um, one thing to lead Medtronic or, or Tesla. It's quite another to lead America, isn't it? So absolutely. And I would never say that leading a company and leading a government are, are the same thing. They are not. Um, politics and business are very, very different fields. And the history of sort of politicians who uh, business people who've decided to go into government yeah. uh, and, you know, is, is not a terribly happy one. The most successful business person ever to become president of the United States was Herbert Hoover. And Herbert Hoover writes, you know, presidency is a byword for disaster. Right. And, and um, in a way, Trump tried to manage America like he managed his own business. Like That's a, right. And and the Trump and organization. The autocrat. Yeah, that's right. And the Trump organization is a, yeah, is a relatively small private company. So he, as its owner, has a level of absolute control over its operations that, you know, a, a, the, you know the, the leader of North Korea has in North Korea, but no Democratic leader could ever could ever have or could should ever aspire to have. That's not something we would ever want a governmental leader to have. So when we look with maybe a degree of nostalgia or romanticism to the business community, oh, if only we could have a leader like a... I don't know, a Musk or a Jobs or a Zuckerberg or whoever else. Uh, that's the wrong way to think about it in your mind. It's profoundly the wrong way to think about it. I mean, leading a business requires remarkable skills. And, you know, when you meet a very good CEO, it's usually pretty clear why they are a very good CEO. But they are not the same set of skills as leading successfully in politics. Uh, that is not an easy transition. Um, We've talked a lot about, and I want to come to a couple of your evaluations of previous presidents, but of course, everybody knows that there hasn't been a female president. We've only talked about men, you and I are male. Um, in terms of this picking president's book and, and, and your thoughts on it, what are the, um, the, gendered, uh, the, the gendered caveats? A lot of people would suggest that Hillary was passed over because she was a woman. People didn't give her the credit that they would have given a male. So what I would say is when you're thinking about unfiltered candidates, right? So candidates who are not system products, the, what you, one of the things that makes them more likely to succeed is they if they have characteristics that made it harder for them to get to the top of the system, right? Because what that says is if they, if they essentially, if they were able to succeed despite a handicap, what you should believe is that their underlying capabilities are so strong that they can succeed despite the fact that they have a handicap. If someone wins the 100-yard dash while wearing a weighted vest, you should believe that they will be even faster when the vest comes off. Um, so that's the Hillary argument. She got to the top in spite of the fact that there exists a glass ceiling in American politics and corporate life. Obviously, she had countervailing advantages, you know, being the first lady, things like that. But at the end of the day, there have been, you know, many, many, there have been many, many people with those advantages, and only one of them became the nominee of a major party for the presidency. So we should probably take that seriously. Does that explain the success of, of Obama? I mean, not everyone likes everything he did, but I think the consensus is that he was a successful president, that the fact that he was the first black man running and won uh, reflects the fact that it's much harder for an African-American to become president than a white man. 
I think that's exactly right. Um, we should say in the case of Obama that he clearly, you know, not just didn't just succeed as a, as a black man, but also someone who came, you know, did not come from a privileged background, did not have all the advantages that, say, George W. Bush did. You know, when you compare the two, it's clear yeah. who had a much easier path to the presidency. Right. And so that should give you, you know, the fact that someone from that background could then become you know, the editor of Harvard Law Review and then rise in the way he did. You should give you some confidence that his underlying capabilities were pretty remarkable. And in the case of Barack Obama, I say, you know, the big indicator that would worry you about him is that he had essentially no managerial experience before he became president, right? The um, running that his, he had never run a company, he'd never run an organization, he'd never been governor of a state. He was a senator before he became president. That would, you know, if, if you were evaluating him before he became president, that would worry you. And your counterbalance would be, but this seems to be someone who has the ability to learn very, very quickly and assemble teams on the fly very, very quickly in ways that may counteract that lack of experience. On the whole, I suspect that 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 is what we will conclude about his presidency going back when we look back at it. It's a very interesting uh, conversation, uh, Gautham, uh, picking presidents, how to make the most consequential decision in the world. Let's end with a couple of them. Um, you already talked about Andrew Johnson, who you view as the, the worst, although he wasn't really elected since he just assumed office. I guess you should be thinking about tickets, too, when you vote. Um, you, you cover a number of less well-known, well, not that Teddy Roosevelt is less well-known. What does your book tell us about Teddy Roosevelt? Uh, was he uh, the right choice? Was he a good pick? He was probably closer to Trump, certainly, than, than Biden, right? So he's like Trump is extraordinarily unfiltered. And in fact, when you think of the story of when of how he became vice president, the answer is that he was, you know, he had an established record as a reformer in New York and he became vice president because the Republican Party's senior leadership wanted to get rid of him. Right. They said, you know, this we, we don't like this reforming. We like being we like being the allies of big business. Let's put him in a place where he can't possibly do any harm. Oh, yes. The vice presidency. Um so that exactly is the story. So what I would say is from their perspective, he was the wrong choice. But from our perspective, I think historians clearly feel that he very much was the right one, right? He was the, he was, he is, historians usually rank him as the fourth best president in American history. And he is the only one of the great presidents who did so without a kind of defining war or foreign policy achievement. He just sort of did it. He did it by his sort of massive reforms of American life um, and really, really creating the modern presidency. Um, T.R. is in many ways the most fascinating of historical characters, because if you wrote a novel about him, no one would believe you, right? That he is, he is not a plausible figure. Um, right. And, and we now, did actually a show and, you know, he's, we're probably in some ways calling out for a man like that with his embrace of nature. We did a show with the, uh, the nature writer, the environmentalist David Gessner, who, who, who has a book out on retracing uh, Teddy Roosevelt's steps uh, in the national parks, comparing Roosevelt and Trump. Yeah, and I would say the one way thing that they do have in the two things I guess they have in common are both being unfiltered presidents and both coming from privileged backgrounds. But then if you know, if once you set that aside, the differences are about as vast as it's possible to imagine. Um, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, Teddy Roosevelt's first book was written while he was in college and was acknowledged as sort of a classic, you know, even by people in Britain when the idea of acknowledging a book of military history but by an American as a classic would have been was would usually have been rejected as absurd. Um, right. He spoke more languages than I think I could enumerate at this point in time. Um, right. He made significant scientific contributions. And also, of course, it was a war hero. Um, it was the the, the, yeah. award was, the award was posthumous, but he is the only person ever to be the recipient of both their nation's highest award for military uh, courage and the Nobel Peace Prize. 
Do you think um, we've had some conversations on this a few months ago? Things might have changed slightly. If there is indeed a, a replay of the last election, Trump versus Biden, how likely is there for a, a Teddy Roosevelt style third party candidate to say these people are just completely useless? You need someone new like um, I. I mean, I think there will always be third-party candidates. I mean, we saw... But there's always third-party, but I'm incredible yeah. third-party candidates. A third-party candidate who could conceivably win. Uh, I think that was something that only Teddy Roosevelt could do, and I don't see a figure in the United States. With, Nobody you know, likes Teddy, form. Elon Musk, uh, a sports star. Um, so it would be... so. Well, Elon Musk was not born in the United States, um, okay. so he would not be eligible. Yeah. Um, a sports star. So you could imagine a celebrity candidate like that getting traction in the Republican Party because, you know, one did. So it's not hard to imagine. It's not hard to sort of run that forward um, and seeing it happening again and maybe drawing some votes away from Donald Trump. It's difficult or impossible to see that happening in the Democratic Party because we, we've run that experiment a few times. Right. And nothing seems to happen. So let, uh, let's Marianne. end with a couple of uh, thoughts on James Buchanan. He's always being considered, hasn't he, the worst president, at least until Trump came along? What's your evaluation of Buchanan? So he was absolutely a disaster. I mean, you know, when, when, when you lead your country into a civil war, it's kind of hard to come off looking good. Yeah. Um, and uh, was he even and worse so I would than just, people evaluate, you think? So, I mean, yes. But what I say in the book, what I think is that he, the failure was not James Buchanan's. The failure was the system. So up until... Joe Biden was elected. James Buchanan was the most experienced person ever to be president of the United States, ever to be elected president, right? He had been at the upper levels of the American government for forever, right? Um, he had been secretary of state. He'd been ambassador to Britain. He'd been, you know, he was just, he'd done everything. And so James Buchanan became president of the United States because pro-slavery interests in the South. And it's important to make that distinction, right? In the early days of the United States, the slavery in the South was viewed as something they were stuck with, right? George Washington and Thomas Jefferson had slaves, but in a perfect world, they would have said that they wouldn't have, right? And, you know, that does not excuse or diminish what it means that they own slaves, but they knew that it was wrong. By the 1850s in the South, slavery interests had shifted their position to such that they viewed slavery as a positive good, right? They were not, did not th say that slavery was something regrettable. They said it was something to be proud of. Slavery was, in, you know, the expansion of slavery was something they were very focused on. And so by that point in, in the American history, the pro-slavery interest had essentially captured the nominating process of the Democratic Party. And what they said was, you could only be nominated to be the president of the United States as a Democrat if you were willing to give pro-slavery interests everything that they wanted. And so James Buchanan was picked to give pro-slavery interests everything that they wanted and as president, that is what he did. He was picked to do exactly what he did as president. And then he did. And of course, now we look back on that as a failure, because of course it was a failure to give one sectional interest of the country everything and sacrifice the desires and interests of the rest of it would inevitably be disastrous and becomes very much more so when it's a sectional interest, of course, as evil as slavery was. Um, but the problem was not James Buchanan. The problem was a system that would make sure that only someone who would do what James Buchanan did could become president. Well, of the what States. it certainly shows is how deeply consequential um, the decision was and the consequential, the behavior, the policies of, of Buchanan. Uh, finally, let, let's talk about another very consequential 
President uh, Truman. Harry Truman doesn't always get the probably the, the press he deserves. But his decision to drop an atomic weapon uh, on, or two atomic weapons on uh, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki were deeply consequential. What's your take on Truman? How does he reflect your arguments in picking president? So, so Truman is a is a almost unique in that he is one of only two people in a, in American history who became president of the United States through what looks almost like a parliamentary system. So he became the president because he was the vice presidential nominee in 1944, and he was the vice presidential nominee because senior members of the Democratic Party knew that Franklin Roosevelt could not possibly survive out his next term, and so they forced on him essentially a vice president who they they were confident. In as the next president of the United States, they knew they were picking the next president, not just the next, not just the next vice president. And so Truman had been in the Senate for a very long time. He had been fully evaluated by Democratic Party leaders. They knew exactly what they were getting when they picked him. And we should remember that when we think of him as president. Now, the particular decision to drop bombs on Japan, you know, is obviously hotly debated. I'll just note that in all of the discussions about whether or not to drop the nuclear bombs. The only significant figure who thought it was a bad idea was Dwight Eisenhower. Um, essentially, the American governments, you know, after four years of war, maybe not that surprisingly, said that no, that we are definitely going to do. Well, he was a general, um, though. I mean, he wasn't a, an inconsequential figure. Eisenhower. No, Eisenhower was, but the, you know, but like you know, George Marshall was also a general. He certainly said we should do so. I'm not saying Eisenhower was inconsequential. What I'm saying is Eisenhower was unique. Um, it's hard to imagine an American president in Truman's situation who would not have done what he did. Uh, and Truman himself viewed his most consequential decision of his presidency as his decision to intervene in Korea uh, when North Korea invaded South Korea. And there, when we look at the Truman administration, what we should say is uh, say, look at it and see, well, they were taken by surprise by the invasion of South Korea. And in only a couple of days, were able to get the support of every one of the L of the yeah, every I mean, one of um, every I, I, major I American. Point, I'm not sure how well it reflects on Truman that if he believed that um, his most consequential decision was invading or getting involved in the Korean War as opposed to dropping a nuclear weapon. So, what's the uh, what's the bottom line on Truman, Gotham? So the bottom line, Truman, is this is the historical consensus, and it is my own judgment, is that you know he was far from a perfect president, but he was an extraordinarily capable one. Um, we should feel pretty grateful that we got him and we could have done a lot worse. Well, we should feel grateful that we have uh, Gotham uh, Makunda too, has a new book out, Picking Presidents, which is a really interesting take on how to take, as he puts it, the most consequential decision in the world, apart from marriage, which he did very smartly too. Congratulations, Gotham, on that and on the new book. What else are you reading these days? I know you have a, a popular podcast, so like me, you probably see a lot of new books. I, I do. Um, so in fiction, I'm just finished reading, well, rereading um, the absolutely stunningly beautiful new novel by the Canadian novelist Guy Gabriel Kay called All the Seas of the World. Um, cannot recommend it uh, strongly enough. It is both, it is sort of fascinating and thought provoking, but it is also, as is true with any of Guy Kay's novels, uh, just the most beautiful use of the English language you can ever encounter. Uh, and so you just savor every sentence and how, how, how perfectly they are constructed. Um, in nonfiction, uh, just finishing up, Jonathan Rauch is the wonderful The Constitution. Of yeah, the Jonathan's been on the show a couple of times. He's an old friend. It's a very good book. Oh, I would, I'd love to talk to him about it because it, it, it is, it is uh, you know, I have many, many thoughts. And I, I, he's, he's a fascinating, a fascinating approach to what he took on.